Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, a fascinating information-filled interview with Dr. Martin McCary about the public health narrative that long avoided the crucial discussion about natural immunity and COVID. What's really behind that and what's happening to science in this conflicted and managed information environment. In today's increasingly managed information landscape, independent journalism has never been more important. Support factual reporting without the censorship by visiting CherylAckison.com and click the Store tab. Proceeds from sales go to causes related to independent reporting, including the new ION Awards I'm sponsoring to encourage accurate, off-narrative, original reporting. Also, check out my bestsellers on this topic, Stonewalled, Slanted, and The Smear. And thanks for being part of the solution. Let me read you a bit from, of all things, the Wikipedia bio for Dr. Martin McCary, because before it goes off into the propaganda thread that we've learned to expect from the agenda editors at Wikipedia, it has some factual information about Dr. McCary's background that's helpful. It says he is a British-American surgeon, professor, author, and medical commentator. He practices surgical oncology and gastrointestinal laparoscopic surgery at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, is Mark Ravitch Chair in Gastrointestinal Surgery at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and teaches public health policy as Professor of Surgery and Public Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's an advocate, it says, for disruptive innovation in medicine, and physician-led initiatives such as the Surgical Checklist, which he developed at Johns Hopkins and was later popularized in a best-selling book, The Checklist Manifesto. McCary was named one of the most influential people in healthcare by Health Leader Magazine. In 2018, he was elected to the National Academy of Medicine. Here's where the agenda editors insert their propaganda. It says, during the COVID-19 pandemic, McCary has been an outspoken opponent of vaccine mandates, CDC policies, and restrictions at colleges and universities. He has been repeatedly criticized by infectious disease specialists for overstating the protection offered by previous COVID infection and for making public health recommendations, quote, beyond his area of expertise that have been characterized as dubious and misleading. Again, one-sided criticism. This is really not supposed to be allowed on Wikipedia if you look at their policies on making sure biographies are written in a neutral language and are accurate and fair. But as we've learned, and that's a whole nother story, Wikipedia pages are often controlled by agenda editors acting often in the pharmaceutical industry's best interests, as it happens, or on behalf of other corporate or political interests. But in any event, McCary is another in a very long list of esteemed medical professionals at the top of their profession who suddenly, according to COVID propagandists, become controversial if they express scientific views on COVID that may be widely held by scientists, but aren't really allowed to be uttered without risking censorship. It's really an interesting trend. We are to believe that physicians and scientists and researchers who are on one side of mask and vaccine mandates are to be listened to. That is, if they support the mask and vaccine mandates. But equally well-educated, experienced physicians, or some even more well-educated and experienced who happen to have the other scientific views, suddenly are to be considered off their rocker and marginalized or smeared. Well, since you're listening to this podcast, you're probably wise to that. And I think you're going to learn a lot from the discussion with Dr. McCary today. We even veer into Alzheimer's causes and bigger questions about compromised science. Here's Dr. McCary. So I studied uh, epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health, where I have a master's in public health, and then have been on 
faculty at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health for about uh, the past 16 years. And clinically, my background is that of uh, surgical care, and I'm head of the Johns Hopkins Islet Transplant uh, Center. And most of my research, though, has been in public health, and most of my time, especially in the last six, seven years, has been in public health and public policy research. To deviate just a moment, in my decades covering medical stuff, I'm not a medical expert. I try to listen to smart people, and I can always look back and see what sources proved correct on things. That's how I sort of develop the go-to on a particular topic. But I found epidemiologists are often very spot on and often sort of off the mainstream narrative of medicine on some things. Is that, is that just my imagination? Is it because you look as an epidemiologist at like broad population trends versus other medical experts? What would you say? Well, I think um, epidemiology is a hard numbers-based discipline, and the models are only good, as good as the assumptions that are put into the models. And trust me, there have been all kinds of models that have been way off. I don't even consider myself to be primarily an epidemiologist. I consider myself to be public health and public policy researcher with a strong clinical background from, from, from taking care of patients. Um, you know, there's no perfect specialty to be the COVID expert. The virologist may not understand all the components of infectious disease and transmission and immunology. The infectious diseases doctors may not have the epidemiology background. The epidemiologist may not know about public policy and poverty and the effects of closures on schools. So there really is no perfect specialty. And frequently there is this game that we call the discredit, which is, hey, what does that person know? They are an emergency medicine doctor or Sanjay Gupta is a neurosurgeon. So that, in my opinion, is not really fair because what ultimately defines your expertise is not only the, the perspective you bring, but also how much you read the literature and talk to people on the ground. Ultimately, like being a good journalist, that's what defines the, the great result. We'll get into the COVID stuff in a moment, but one more sort of public health, <clears throat> public health question. In covering these issues, I've been surprised to learn that some public health experts, and they've said this to me, I, I think the first time someone said it years ago to me, I just kind of caught my breath. I don't know if they're taught or they just believe in some cases that even if something is true, that maybe you, the public, should not know it or should not be told it because they're here yeah. to either calm you if you're too worried about something, a health fear, or shape your behavior a certain way that maybe they think best for all, even if not necessarily best for you individually, talking about population stuff. And I guess I don't, I don't think people know that. And I also feel a little bit resentful as a regular person hearing someone say, this is for your own good. And I feel like saying, I didn't elect you. You're not my doctor. I just want the truth and the facts from you. I don't, I don't want your spin on something because you're, you think you're watching out for some sort of greater purpose. What are your comments on that? Yeah, that's a huge problem in medicine. It's something I've been focused on my entire career. It's what we call establishment thinking, or now known as the group think in medicine, as we've called it. And look, many of us have been up against the establishment our entire careers. I mean, if you look at the 300 or so research articles I've put out there, most have been trying to challenge, have been trying to challenge the dogma that we have in medicine around this paternalism. What you're describing is paternalism. Oh, they're too stupid. They can't understand the nuances that natural immunity is actually effective. It might detract from those who get vaccinated because maybe some think they have natural immunity and they really don't because they've never had, it's never been confirmed. So they're too stupid. Let's just tell everybody you have to get vaccinated and ignore those who already have circulating antibodies that work to neutralize the virus. Ironically, they've had antibodies that circulate that neutralize the virus, but they are antibodies the government has not recognized. The establishment has not recognized. We've seen that paternalism in all of medicine, especially in the treatment of women. We've seen it with home pregnancy tests. The medical establishment was very against the idea that women could test themselves and find out if they're pregnant, right? They had to come in and see us in the office and we had to tell them the news 
Um, we Many of us have been pushing for home HIV testing. Again, the establishment very against it, shut it down. You know, how dare they get this medical information without our authority? Um, the scope of practice of other practitioners in, in medicine, um, you know, limiting what they can do. So there's a longstanding history of this paternalism, and it really hurt us badly when it came time when COVID hit because the group think on surface transmission burned us hard on ignoring natural immunity on the spacing of the two vaccine doses on boosters in children on so many aspects, even down to the barbaric practice of not allowing family members to visit their dying loved one. That was a human rights violation. That was wrong. It should have never happened. I mean, what's the risk of a person coming in saying goodbye and holding, there are things worse than dying. And so our group think has hurt us badly in this pandemic. And the good news is people are seeing through it. I personally believe the public really just wants honesty. They just want to, they just hit, hit it to me straight, doc. Tell me the data. I'll, I can make this decision. And they are starving right now for some humility from the medical community. I think you're absolutely spot on with that from what I hear as well. But when you're talking about the paternalistic attitude, add to that that there's conflicts in medicine. So it's not just doctors always independently thinking what's good for the whole. It's also industry, well-funded, powerful people convincing public health professionals, kind of pushing them in a certain direction to make decisions on top of what they might have already thought. And I think that compounds, and certainly with COVID, has compounded some of the decision-making that happened. You recently wrote an opinion piece that was titled The High Cost of Disparaging Nat Natural Immunity to COVID. And I think the subtitle said, vaccines were wasted on those who didn't need them and people who posed no risk lost jobs. So. What's the upshot of the message you were giving in there in that op-ed? Well, most of the world has recognized natural immunity. So if you have had COVID and you were sick and recovered, you've got circulating antibodies over 99% certainty. You've got circulating antibodies. That's research for my own Johns Hopkins research team. And they're durable a good two years because we've only been able to study them two years. That's as long as COVID's been around. The other hot coronaviruses that cause severe illness SARS and MERS, and there's only been three ever, SARS, MERS, and COVID, they give long-lasting, lifelong, we think, immunity. They've been studied long-term. So the idea that the starting hypothesis was that natural immunity didn't work was the wrong hypothesis. They should have started with the hypothesis that it's effective and durable until proven otherwise. And because they picked the wrong hypothesis, and because they're, politi they're political, let's be honest, um, they dug in hard into their positions. And as the data began to emerge, and it was very clear over time, natural immunity was more effective, not just as effective, more effective. What they did is they went into this deep denial and, and really uh, entrenched in their policies that we just cannot recognize that everyone has to get vaccinated. Well, it turns out if you have natural immunity, many of us doctors were recommending you don't have to get the vaccine. We may recommend one dose. You certainly don't need a booster. Even the second dose is questionable. In young, healthy men, the rate of myocarditis can be one in 2,000 people. So there's no from, need to expose them to that. From the vaccine. From the vaccine. From the vaccine, which is now proven to be higher than the rate of myocarditis from COVID itself. That's a Nature Medicine paper. So all of this conversation was really suppressed because this edict from on high was vaccinate America. And if you start getting into the nuances or you start getting precise about natural immunity, then that could detract from the broader, simple messaging. And many public health officials I talked to privately said, look, Marty, we got to keep the message really streamlined. Just very simple, vaccinate everybody, two doses, maybe, you know, three. Um, it quickly switched to three with really zero evidence that the boosters do anything clinically in people under 30 who are healthy. There's zero support. FDA authorized that by bypassing their own external expert advisory committee. They did not convene them for that vote, which is very unusual. So people are seeing through this. They're saying, hey, wait a minute. Now, if you look at what we did to workers, truck drivers, soldiers dishonorably discharged, because they had circulating antibodies from natural immunity, but they were not antibodies the government recognized. That was as anti-science of a crime as there ha ever has been. They have been treated very 
um, unfairly, they should they should be reinstated with an apology. And so the irony was now that the CDC's own data, this is from last week, showed that natural immunity is three times better in preventing hospitalization. That is 2.8 times better and 4.7 times better in reducing the risk of getting the infection subsequently. So natural immunity better is better than what? Better than vaccines. So here we have clear data that on a head-to-head comparison, natural immunity was more effective. Now, those public health officials will tell me privately again, Marty, we don't want that really out there because people might choose to get the infection instead of choose to get vaccinated. And I tell them, don't treat people like they're all stupid. Be honest with the data and let them make the decision and encourage vaccination instead of getting the infection. We don't want people to try to get the infection because it's much safer to get vaccinated. But for those who who got the infection and recovered, let's be honest, they have circulating antibodies that work and they're better than vaccines alone. So the, the great irony, Cheryl, is that when we fired workers who had natural immunity because they didn't get the vaccine, we fired those least likely to spread the COVID infection in the workplace. And so you had hospitals you know, firing nurses. That. I think vaccine mandates are going into effect. I think 25 states put them into effect this week. I think 20, I think, guess the rest of them are coming soon. I mean, they're standing by that in the face of what seems to me just common sense and logic. And I wish the Biden administration, you know, I don't get into politics. I'm not political, but I wish the Biden administration would recognize natural immunity in their requirement for hospital workers because they're holding on to that very tightly ever since the Supreme Court uh, kept that piece of the mandate going, the rest of it was overturned. So what's happening is you have hospitals now firing nurses who have natural immunity. Most hospital workers have natural immunity who are unvaccinated. I mean, we're around COVID all the time, right? And we have from the start. So you had multi-care, a hospital system in Washington state servicing about eight semi-rural communities they fired 55 healthcare workers for not having the vaccine. Now, most of them had natural immunity. They then go into crisis staffing mode and some of their workers get COVID, the ones who are remaining who are vaccinated get COVID and they call out sick. So they send out a memo and they say, even if you have COVID, if you test positive for COVID, you have active COVID and you're symptomatic, come back to work because we are that desperate, okay? Ballot Health, uh, I know the CEO well, they did not fire workers, but they are going to lose a thousand healthcare workers once that Medicare requirement kicks in. And so they are going to call back, call in people who are COVID positive if they can come in and work because they are at battlefield level crisis. Most. This is a manufactured crisis. Okay. And when you live in the bi-coastal elite cities and you talk to your friends who are CEOs, these giant university medical centers, that is not America. 80% of America is getting their medical care at their local community hospital, and it's not in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And right now there's a rural health crisis, and those rural hospitals have been forgotten. They have got to recognize natural immunity, and they've got to do it today to alleviate the staffing crisis. Let me read a line from an article about you, and you may not be political, but you will be in this environment smeared or made to be political or (laughs) controversialized if you're not on the right side of what, I guess you could say, the establishment wants people to think. Um, I write about that a lot in more general terms. This, This line in this news article says, there's broad consensus that vaccines offer better and longer lasting protection than previous infections with exponentially less risk of serious complications. I mean, from what I know, that's completely false. Did you catch that line or did you see that article? I think it was in Virginia paper. I did not see it. Gosh, I don't even know what's out there about me. That's false, right? That there's broad consensus that vaccines offer better, longer lasting protection than previous infections? Well, it's absolutely false. The largest, so there's 146 studies that have been done on natural immunity showing that they're as effective or more, it's more effective or as effective as vaccines alone. Now, you can ignore that entire body of literature. Which CDC kind of does or did until recently. Yes, and they, they, the only studies that suggested natural immunity was worse than vaccines alone were by the CDC and they were highly flawed. So highly flawed, they did not go into any scientific journal. 
They were never peer reviewed. And quite honestly, they were studied so poorly done that they wouldn't even qualify for a seventh grade science fair. But they were the only studies that they held on to. And all these public health, health officials held on to these two flawed studies. Meanwhile, you had this massive body of literature, 146 studies now show natural immunity is as effective or more effective than vaccinated immunity. And the largest study worldwide is comes out of the Israeli health ministry showing that natural immunity adjusted for age is 27 times more effective than vaccinated immunity. It's not even close. So um, the idea of cherry picking data that you like to fit your narrative and then broadcast it from on high, you know, out of the NIH and it becomes the group think that has been our problem and should be our biggest lesson from this pandemic, because I'll tell you, COVID, as tragic as it's been, has had a case fatality rate of 0.2%. Now, that's terrible, but there are infections and viruses out there with case fatality rates of 5% and 10 and 25%. And if we get one of those, we're in deep trouble with this sort of groupthink. And to clarify, um, tell me if I have this right. Case fatality rate of 0.2% means two-tenths of 1% of all the people diagnosed with COVID die. But if you actually add in all the people who have COVID that are not diagnosed, that number is even teeny tinier, right? We think it's smaller. Yes. The big problem we have, of course, now is that the COVID death numbers don't add up. There's a math problem. We are probably, we've never gotten good data on the number of people dying from COVID versus with COVID. And that distinction is an important distinction and we've never gotten good data out of that. You saw Brett Baer interview Rochelle Walensky from the CDC about that. And she said uh, then that data will be forthcoming. We've never seen that data. And well, so that, that makes be, a difference. I just don't even understand why that's being hidden for the moment. Like that should just have been all along a number that they count. And I did an investigation earlier this season on my TV program called Counting COVID. And in one state alone in Colorado, we know that when they separate out the deaths of COVID and the deaths with COVID, it cuts the number of deaths in half. So, and that was even counting a murder-suicide of a couple that happened to have COVID at some point before their death. If you take out, so it's at least 50% by Colorado's own numbers. I think uh, one county in California, their numbers reduced by something like 25% when they took yes, out- Yes, Alameda County. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a significant number. We just, we can see, and that should have been, if you're a public health official interested in really understanding the impact of this emerging disease, that should have been job one. You would separate out those numbers. I would think you want to know. Well, you want to they're know busy. They don't have enough staff at the CDC. They only have 21,000 employees. Right. So assigning a couple of them to do that may be too taxing. And, and I would suggest a third number should be gathered, even of the ones who died because of COVID, that subset. I think not that the old and co comorbid people count any less than anybody else, but I also think you want to know that number. So you want to know who died because of COVID. And then among those who died because of COVID, you'd kind of like to know their health status prior to death versus, you know, healthy people. Um, where are we on herd immunity? Let me just tell you a couple stuff I heard. There was a CDC funded study that said last March or April, not a CDC study, a, fund, a study that got some funding from CDC that I think looked at blood or some kind of samples that said we were close to herd immunity then. And then CDC kept hidden their estimates for months. They were posting and then they quit posting the number of infections they estimated people had, which would give us some hint at natural immunity. They've started posting again after Gosh, I asked them for months what that data was. And then I saw something that said they think it's now 25 or 30%, but I spoke to a government military virologist who thinks we're closer to 80%. What do you think with so-called herd immunity? So the threshold for hitting herd immunity changes by the contagiousness of the variant at the time. So in the spring of 2021, many of us, many people thought that we were going to see strong population immunity, as we now call it, some at some point in the late spring. And we were having different debates, and many of us were frustrated with the J&J &J pause as uh, created a lot of vaccine hesitancy, canceled over a million vaccine appointments, sort of delaying it a little bit. 
But with alpha and beta, the original two major variants, we did see really high levels of population immunity by the late spring and really a normal early summer. And then out of the blue, uh, breaking everybody's prediction, every expert missed this, a giant outbreak in India happened where out of it emerged Delta. And Delta changed that threshold for herd immunity. And so we had the Delta wave and then Omicron came, which is so contagious. Now we have basically Dr. Fauci acknowledging that everybody will get it. I'm, interestingly, by the way, Dr. Fauci had said we would see herd immunity in the spring of 2020, which is what I also said. I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal saying that at the current trajectory, I expect blah, blah, blah. Now, the title on it said, you know, we don't write the titles, as you know, in journalism. So the title, which I would, you know, had no say in, said herd immunity by April. But the, what, what the, I actually wrote was not that. What I wrote was at the current trajectory, I expect. And people were so giddy to get back to normal. It just took off. And so people started saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe we're not going to have herd immunity. Well, the threshold changes with the different variants. So with Omicron, it may very well be that 90, 95% of the population gets it or gets exposed to, to it or some predecessor before we really get to low levels. We do know from South Africa that Omicron, Omicron hit very low levels very quickly, and we're on that trajectory right now in the United States. Now, will another variant come up in this fall or two or three years from now? Yes, we will have another variant. Hopefully, it'll be less contagious. Hopefully, our immunity will cross over. Hopefully, it'll be a mild common cold. We have four other coronaviruses that have circulated for decades that collectively cause 25% of the cases of the common cold. And they will mutate. And that's life. If, you know, I don't like it. But if you don't like it either, then, you know, you can talk to the scientists that brewed this thing up in the gain of function lab, because that's our new world is that these variants are coming from animal reservoirs. You know, over half of deer have had this rodents, millions. So when you have that much viral replication in an animal population, that animal reservoir is going to spit out a variant every year or every couple of years. Let's just hope it's mild because that's the way variants normally work. That's the trajectory of variances that are downward. Back with more from Dr. McCary after a short break. Tasks, deadlines, and projects. What if your teams had a tool that brought everything together? Trello is the project management tool that powers collaboration for over 2 million teams across the globe, including 80% of Fortune 500s. Trello brings teams together by tracking daily to-dos and provides a high-level view across projects and teams. From product development and design to support and production, Trello helps all teams move their work forward together. Thousands of IT admins around the world trust Trello to keep their work safe. With Trello, your teams will have access to hundreds of top-tier integrations they can rely on. A big reason why Trello is top-rated for employee satisfaction. It's where companies do their best work. Trello for enterprise. Learn more by visiting trello.com slash for enterprise. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com slash for enterprise. We're back with Dr. Martin McCary of Johns Hopkins. Well, how about this new thought I hadn't had till I spoke to a source? Now that this came from me asking the question of a source, who's watching out for the fact that however the first COVID-19 came about, there are now samples available to any crazy mad scientist, every country, every Iranian bioscientist has access now to a coronavirus that's been really bad for us that they, I assume, could manipulate and do whatever they want to with. And this person who's firsthand on all this stuff said they're watching for this sort of thing. But also, this person alerted me to the notion that practically every lab in the world is now working on coronavirus. And they think there are leaks from, you know, unintentional leaks, very likely from some of these places, because you just have so much of it out there now. Um, and there's, there are some people investigating, not saying it's the case for sure, but investigating whether Omicron, because of how it looks compared to how it should look, that that could be some kind of accidental lab release or even non-accidental lab release. So this is all ongoing. And I haven't heard any talk about that. It's kind of, kind of daunting. 
it is amazing how nobody talks about it. So if somebody is saying that they're watching what's happening in the labs nationwide, they're not watching very closely because China beefed up all their labs, massive expansions, increased the number of labs, renovations. Look at the Wuhan original Wuhan lab. It's now been fortified. It's been, you know, so there's this concern now that why are the, all these countries out there beefing up their labs there's a long history of lab leaks. Now, as you may know, I said two months into the pandemic on national TV that it was a lab worker, I believe that was patient zero who got the infection from the lab. It was very clear to me and it still is, um, but there's a long history of lab leaks. That's why this is not the riddle of the Sphinx. China was messing with the SARS virus after the SARS epidemic had gone away. The following year, they had an, a leak of the SARS virus in 1977, China had one of their labs leak an H1N1 strain that killed 700,000 people that year. A top Chinese official later admitted that they were working on it, and there was evidence that they were injecting something into their military recruits, presumably an experimental vaccine. Now, I don't think it's easy to come up with a bioweapon with a virus because your number one risk is your own population if it leaks out. So it's not a simple science, but in the United States, we've had multiple leaks, lab leaks of respiratory pathogens. And anyone who's worked in a lab can tell you that lab leaks are relatively common. That's why, can I just add one thing, Joe? That's why we need Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins to show leadership and say, look, we supported gain-of-function research and op-eds and lectures, clearly. We funded it all over the world. We can argue about if they did it at the Wuhan lab. But, but they clearly did in other labs. We are sorry. We recognize the risks now are far worse than any potential benefits. Let us call for a worldwide consensus now on an international perpetuity ban on all gain-of-function research. We need that leadership right now. We need to just have this agreement like we do on nuclear war, and nobody's going to be doing this. Well, I asked the question recently because I don't get it. I don't get that. Since this happened, I haven't heard it publicly said that we've stopped funding partnerships with China, which every independent scientist I spoke to for an article I did thought was just crazy and ill-advised that we were partnering on sensitive research with the communist Chinese anyway. Why haven't we stepped forward and just said, okay, we're stopping that for now. We're stopping gain of function. Like, shouldn't all of that been done two years ago, just common sense wise? Yes. And doesn't China have enough money of its own to do this stuff. I mean, the research that the NIH funds calls for a dramatic revamping of the NIH. That organization needs a complete uh, reform makeover. I mean, if you look at what they fund, they fund research that fits these old school silos. Okay, there's no research on food as medicine and environmental exposures that cause cancer and behavioral and lifestyle aspects of health, even though most of healthcare utilization is driven by behavioral um, choices. Now, the H and NIH stands for health. It doesn't mean only laboratory pathways. It's, it, they should be studying health. And if you talk to researchers, they're frustrated with the NIH. My own research team had a large grant proposal submitted to the NIH on identifying the causes of Alzheimer's. We believe we have identified some mo modifiable behavioral risk factors that contribute to Alzheimer's. We have preliminary data. We put together a giant research grant with all the top experts at Johns Hopkins on this topic, and it was not funded. Now, we find out later, right around that time, they were funding the Wuhan lab. We need a complete reform of the NIH. Now, if you look at where they spent their money the year the pandemic hit us. And my research team at Hopkins actually just did a study of the NIH in the first year of the pandemic, 2020. Where did they spend their money? Less than 5% went to COVID. 250 plus grants went to social and racial disparities in COVID care, but only four went to how does it spread? And only one went to masks. So we put restrictions on 72 million kids. We told everyone it was surface transmission. They were not doing the basic clinical research they could have done in five days 
to ask the most basic questions American doctors were getting. How does it spread? When are you most contagious? When is the peak viral shedding? How long do you have to quarantine for? Do masks work? Those questions were unanswered by our gigantic NIH $42 billion budget. And as a result, we had a vacuum of knowledge or evidence to answer the questions Americans were asking us. And guess what filled that vacuum? Political opinions. And that's how we got the most politically polarized virus in, in pandemic in history. And the average time that they took to give money to researchers in 2020 was five months. You could have done this experiment in 10 days. So the NIH's failure to pivot and respond to the pandemic and instead have Fauci go on, on the, all, every network with an FCC license just to say, hey, you know, we're following this closely. We're on this. We got this. You know, we're tracking it. How about do the basic research we needed to do to answer that it's airborne and not surface transmission? So that's how that that's how that was the original sin of the pandemic. Well, and that may be with us for a long time because I'll be working on a story on credibility lost. I think to the extent they had a great deal of credibility, our our most what were once the most credible health organizations in the world, NIH and CDC, have really taken a hit in the minds of many Americans who are not anti-vaccine and are asking rational questions and seeing their experience around them differ from what they're being told by these public health professionals and then start trusting nothing. And I'm wondering if the system, I guess I don't think it's going to be blown up and rebuilt because it's so powerful and so establishment driven, but it's almost like that's what it needs. If people, I just don't see people believing in these agencies the way they may be used to. Yes, unfortunately, it's going to take a lot of time to restore credibility. And I think the path to regaining public credibility is to apologize, own it, and talk about how we get out of this. We need a 9-11 commission style assessment of our health agency's inability to respond, you know, be it with testing or anything else. We need to keep it civil. We, we cannot let this conversation get personal. I see people take personal uh, jabs at Dr. Walensky or Dr. Fauci. That's not appropriate. Um, you know, he's get, he gets paid a lot the, more than any other person in the government. That's not our problem right now. Let's, not, let's talk about the real issues of how we restructure the NIH, how we restructure the CDC with their collective $60 billion budget and over 30,000 employees. They've got to be able to respond. How do we restructure hospitals so they can be expandable and adapt to a health emergency? Because it's not just going to be a virus. It's going to be an earthquake or a fire or a mass shooting, and they've got to be expandable. So I looked into this a little bit, and we've already funded to the tune of trillions of dollars the things that you said. We funded operations that are supposed to make hospitals quickly expandable. We funded pandemic preparation, prepper, preparedness and response. We funded systems and agencies and processes. And then when it happened, this was maybe the biggest test ever. And we kind of failed at every level. I have a feeling a lot of the answer is going to be, and I have heard from some public health experts, we need more money for this. We need more money for that. And my response is we've put trillions in and we started from scratch when this pandemic happened. So I don't really get it. Yeah. And you're seeing that with schools too right now, right? They will close on a dime, um, even though they got, you know, billions of dollars in funding to sort of work on ventilation and preparedness. And what you're saying is, is absolutely true. So the, the CDC is already on the doorsteps of Congress, banging on the door saying, we need more money for the future for pandemic preparedness. Even though they've got 21,000 employees and they can't even tell you how many of the 800 reported kids died from COVID or with COVID over the last two years. So we have an organizational problem. One thing they need to do is come up with pathways to go into contingency emergency mode. Now, that means that you can take your 10 years to approve a new drug during peacetime, but when we're, we're in wartime and we're in a health emergency, you might need a 24-hour turnaround on an auth emergency use authorization. That means that when hospitals need, need to expand, they don't have to apply for a city permit to expand their hospitals during a health emergency. That is something we can work out ahead of time so we're not you know, handcuffed and scrambling when the, when the time comes. 
The subject of your best-selling book, The Price We Pay, is what? Well, you know, broadly speaking in healthcare, we need to talk about how to redesign the entire system. We need to talk about how we should be treating more diabetes with cooking classes instead of just throwing insulin at people. We've got to treat more back pain with ice and physical therapy instead of just surgery and opioids. We have the most medicalized generation in human history, and we can keep throwing meds at people and ignoring the underlying issues that are bringing people to care. But at some point, the public is saying, stop, let's talk about the microbiome and food as medicine and the environmental exposures that cause cancer, not just the chemotherapy to treat it. We've got to get beyond the laboratory and how we think about health and disease because we talk about sickness, but we don't talk enough about health. And in medical schools, our curriculums are designed for this memorized regurgitation of our young students. And now they're coming through the system and they're saying, look, I don't want to just memorize and regurgitate. I want to talk about how we build a relationship with somebody and create a program with accountability to help them through their journey and getting healthier. Because the hard part about chronic disease, which is 70% healthcare costs, is not telling people what to do. It's helping them do it. And there are clinics now emerging now that are hand-holding and walking through things with people, educating them, talking about their high blood pressure management, not just in terms of the meds, but in terms of their sleep patterns and stress management. And they're seeing incredible outcomes. And so those innovators that are redesigning care were the subject of this recent book, The Price We Pay. All right, a question and an idea. I guess first my idea. NIH and the government control scientists by controlling the funding and the studies. In other words, yes. they speak out on the wrong things. Their, their institution will be pressured to fire them. The study will not be funded. You know, I don't think people understand how much the government controls. So these scientists who are off the narrative can't operate or can't speak out or can't do their work. With your Alzheimer's study, for example, there are so many people interested in that. Has there ever been any thought into crowdfunding? In other words, if, if you put up a page somewhere and said, this is what we want to do, the government doesn't want to fund it. I can't believe there wouldn't be tons of people given little amounts of money that would help you do, do that kind of a study. And then you don't have to please somebody. I love it. You know what? That's a great idea. Maybe we should think about that. Um... I mean, I'd give a little money to that for sure, especially if you're going off the narrative, trying to discover something that everybody wants to know. And then my, but my question is, because I better not let you go without asking, understanding the study was not funded and you had basically a hypothesis, what were the behavioral things that need to be tested that you would be looking into with Alzheimer's? Yeah, so it turns out in our preliminary analysis on the causes of Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's related dementia, is that chronic poor sleep was a major contributor. It was a significant factor. And the reason is now we've got laboratory evidence suggesting that when you're in a certain deep phase of sleep, the lymphatic system engorges in the brain. It's called the glial lymphatic system, and it removes plaque in that deep phase. Also, the more stress there is in someone's life, now we have from mouse models, the more plaque production so you may have situations with more production, less removal. That may be a contributing factor along with glucose metabolism. There's also a gene that we think is a factor. Unfortunately, that's the only thing the scientific community has been focusing on because it's a laboratory thing and the microbiome. So we think all of those are factors and they're modifiable factors because guess what's happening as the world sleeps less and is more stressed and is messing up the microbiome, we have seen Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's related dementia go way up. We're almost, you know, it's not just that people are living longer. It's that we are truly seeing the incidents go up. So at some point we've got to say, stop, what are we doing? The current way we study things, not just Alzheimer's, but cancer and you name it, we're not making progress. We've got to change the approach. Look at the return on investment on cancer. We spend $100 billion on cancer research a year. And what is our ROI? The top paper at the, our big cancer meeting called ASCO several years ago was repurposing one cancer drug for another type of cancer and increasing the average survival period by a few months with no added cures. Now, if that's our top scientific discovery for the year, 
we're not, that's not a good ROI. We need to change our strategy. So that's what we work on. That's what my research team at Hopkins has been dedicated to basically my entire career. And we've had some really sort of um, successful breakthroughs. And this is the stuff that I, that gets me excited. I just interviewed some sleep experts for a story that will be coming up on my TV show. And they mentioned this theory of the, the discussion about sleep and Alzheimer's, what you just said, that thinking that that plays a really important role, meaning I got to get a lot more sleep. I'm not stressed, <laughs> but I don't sleep at all. <laughs> I, mean, I was like, I got to sleep some more. You mentioned twice microbiome or Mike, is that what you said? What is that? Yes. The microbiome is the organ. The, they are the organisms that live in the GI tract all the way. The entire GI system has millions of bacteria and different organisms that live in an equilibrium. And in that equilibrium, they do different things. They break down food. They're involved in absorption. They produce vitamins independently. Those bacteria make vitamins for your body. They produce serotonin, which is involved in mood. And so the microbiome is its own organ system that we have never really studied in medicine. And it turns out that when it's in, in an equilibrium, there, there's a lot of good that comes out of it. And when it's thrown off equilibrium and you kill many of the bacterial species and the other bacteria overgrow with what we call bacterial overgrowth, you reduce the diversity of that microbiome. It's like a garden and you know weeds can kind of grow. And what you have then are issues where there's more inflammation in the GI tract. And guess what? Ever since we've been messing with the microbiome with antibiotics, which can be like TNT in the microbiome. Now, antibiotics save lives that they're important sometimes, but they're often massively overused for things where you shouldn't be on them. And, you know, everything from development, you know, why do we wash a baby when a baby's born? That bacteria on the skin of the baby from the vaginal canal grows in and forms the basis of the microbiome. We're now recognizing that breastfeeding versus bottle feeding affects the microbiome. Sometimes you have to bottle feed. We're not saying it's bad, but there are best practices that we've ignored in most of medicine. The food we eat, the glucose levels of those, that food, the processed nature of the food, we mess up the microbiome. So guess what? Ever since we've been doing that, we've been seeing diseases that never existed before. Ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, irritable bowel and inflammatory bowel disease, bacterial overgrowth syndromes. Um, they, it, these inflammatory conditions can contribute to cancer. So we have got to recognize the role of the microbiome. We've never done that. And if you talk to ex specialists in this space, they will tell you that there's a massive unrecognized um, contribution of the microbiome to general health that is modifiable. There are foods and things that we can take in that help restore that equilibrium. We don't understand it much because it's a new science, but we do know what insults the microbiome and messes it up. And that's something, those good conversations we've never had. I've had moms come in with their kid. They've got terrible abdominal pain, you know, maybe GI bleeding from it, maybe a new onset inflammatory bowel disease diagnosis. And the mom will look at me and say, how could this possibly happen to my son? And I'm thinking, I can't say this, but I wanna say, You've been feeding them shit for 20 years. You know that we can't, I, you know, I can't say that. And it's not the time to say that, but look at what we feed our kids. Look at the school lunch programs. So these are the issues that we need to address if we're going to talk about health, because if we just keep coming up with new pharmaceutical products, we're going to be bankrupting this country and worsening overall health status. Well, I will contribute to fund studies on that too. Just give me a call. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I really believe in that. So thank you so much, Marty McCary. That's so interesting. I'm going to have to call you back another time and learn more about the research you're doing. But thanks for telling us about COVID and about your book, The Price We Pay. Appreciate it. Great, Cheryl. Great to be with you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Leave a review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. You can support independent journalism by visiting the new Cheryl Ackeson store at CherylAckeson.com, click the store tab. There are some products there I know you're gonna love, just perfect for independent and free thinkers. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all of the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. 
All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a MyPillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. I, it was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best slipper ever the best foot experience late at night well mike has got he took over two years to develop this he designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long it's comfortable it's durable it's made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper and it's made with quality leather suede they look good they feel good they wear good for a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into springtime. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those My Slippers. You gotta have them, they're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800-951-3715 and use the promo code JUSTNEWS when someone picks up. Call 800-951-3715, use the promo code JUSTNEWS. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life. You've done your homework. Investing in Bitcoin can be risky, but despite its risks, there's potential for growth. So how do you Bitcoin thoughtfully? By investing in bits of it through a Bitcoin-linked ETF. When you invest in Bitcoin with the Acorns app, a Bitcoin ETF is just a topping on your diversified ETF portfolio of stocks and bonds. Acorns helps you manage some of Bitcoin's inherent risks by setting guardrails in place that let you invest up to 5% of your overall portfolio in Bitcoin exposure. Plus. Due to Bitcoin's historically low correlation to stocks, meaning when the price of stocks move up or down, it doesn't always influence Bitcoin's value. Acorn's approach to Bitcoin helps you diversify your investments even further. All you need is your spare change to get started. Get a bonus $10 in investments when you start investing in Bitcoin thoughtfully at acorns.com podcast. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Acorns does not offer a direct investment in Bitcoin. Learn more at acorns.com.